Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. I'm here in my home city of Dublin with a very interesting guest for you all today. He's a very humble and soft-spoken man who doesn't particularly like receiving a lot of praise, although he is deserving of a lot and has received a lot. I'm welcoming to the podcast Kieran McGowan. Welcome, Kieran. Thanks, Sean. Kieran is one of the architects of Ireland's transition from a sleepy European agricultural backwater to the sparkly high-tech, albeit still with its problems, a country that most people know of it today. Uh, he has been for many years involved in what's called the IDA, which is the Industrial Development Authority of Ireland, which was the core body responsible for trying to bring investment and jobs to the country. And he's joining me to reminisce and chat about his life and what he's learned and uh, we're hopefully going to have a good bit of banter so welcome thanks very much Johnny. so you were born in dublin and you've lived was here it? all your life have and what was it like growing up for you as it t- tell me a little bit about well it was uh, it was interesting in this way that uh, i was the eldest of four we had a shop mm-hmm. in rat mines my right. dad was a grocer he was doing well until he got bad news that he had TB. At that time, TB was rampant, yeah. a bit like cancer today. And so he had to go into hospital in the pigeon house when I was nine, at the eldest of four, and I was nine years old. And so my mother had a big challenge on her hands, rearing the family and also looking after the shop and looking after my father. And so this is uh, the time before supermarkets? And long before supermarkets. What was the shop like? Did you have brown paper bags? It was like the uh, Walton's shop. Walton sh- uh, brown paper bags. You know, machines for cutting the meat, coal in one corner, <laughs> but selling rubber boots and things, the whole yeah. works. The supermarket started to come along, which made life even more challenging for us. But how we survived for a number of years against the supermarkets was we provided a service of delivery. Mm. Like a number of our customers who were living beside the shop in Red Mines started to move out we thought to the suburbs in, yeah. in Milltown. <laughs> about a mile away. <laughs> exactly. So this what year are we talking here? We're right? talking here now about early 50s, 53, 54. Okay. My father would be going from house to house in Milltown. I was 13 or 14, and that's where I learned to drive, actually driving the car when I had to have a cushion. I wasn't supposed to be driving at 13 or 14, but driving around to, be, to give a service to the customers and also to provide them with tick, you know, in the books. Credit. So, credit. And so those two advantages, if you like, over the supermarkets helped us to compete with them for a little while anyway. The shop raised us, basically, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it taught me also customer service. The people that we were serving, I would know them today, to this day. Really? Yeah, I would because we got to know their families. So we wouldn't be just delivering their messages. We would be actually going in, having a cup of tea, saying, how's it going? How's so it all real that customer service. Real like customer marketing. Totally customer real customer service. And my yeah. father, when things were hard up in the customers, he yeah. would actually be giving them even more on the books, you know. Then, of course, some of them people didn't ever pay, and that was not, not easy. And how was your father? Did he? he was told, again, when I was nine, so that would be 1951-52, that he'd have a year to live. And he lived for 30 years. No. Which is I thought mag- you were going to say no, no, it was magic. I didn't know the answer. It was that. magic, really. So it must have been a wonderful day ah, when he came home. Yeah, fantastic. Then you were, you were in school in Sing Street, yeah? Yeah. Tell me what that was like back in the day. So there's a Christian Brothers school. Oh, it was Christian Brothers school. And it was a brother, O'Keefe was our brother. Right. The old, oldish man. Used snuff yeah. all down his, his satan. Lovely. And uh, 
he took it on himself to teach us about sex, which was just ah, magic. Yeah. Like we were. Well, the priests knew an awful lot more about sex back then than we thought they did. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did knew an awful lot more sex than we did because we knew nothing about it. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the first year, he was able to know enough about it was about thirty or thirty-five in the class to promote, if you like, four of us from D to A, which was right. a big deal. Yeah. We had other. And you were one of them. I was one of them. And then we had better teachers as we went along. What are your memories of living in Dublin, like when you're in your late teens? First of all, my memories in relation to the school was we cycled to school, cycled home for our lunch, cycled back in again and cycled home again. So there was a lot of crack really of messing around with the bikes. Yeah. And, Did you play uh, sport? Played Gaelic for the school. In the school also, there was a, there were forbidden games, one of which was soccer. soccer of course. Yeah. And so uh, those I'm overseas listeners, we're talking here about uh, Gaelic football, which is the national sport of Ireland, which has a sister sport called hurling. And in Ireland, they're still the most popular sports by a long stretch in terms of people watching them and playing participation. Although soccer, of course, as in most countries, is played by huge numbers of people. However, soccer uh, was seen by the Gaelic Athletic Association, who runs the GA, as a British sport, and it was banned. And uh, you know, you had to make a call between Gaelic or, or soccer, and you were it was it you were you were um, kind of shunned a bit as a British lover. You were banned, as you say, by the yeah. brothers uh, from playing soccer. But it was an, there was an Easter league, so during the Easter holidays, there was an e- there was a league of soccer teams, yeah. and we were Kevin's. We played in Dalymont Park, Richmond Park, and really, really, we thought this was the equivalent of Wembley, you know. Uh, so that was, they were terrific days as well. So what was the, 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 what was it like that time? Then we started to go to the dances in the, the Olympic. My and my wife. Like I met her first of all in uh, in my first job, Irish Pension Trust, when I was seventeen. I didn't start going out with her for about a year after that. I really started going out with her because we used to go to the Olympic ballroom. We used to go to the Four Provinces in Harker Street, a crystal ballroom, a lot of dancing. You met Brida when you were seventeen. So you've been with Brida for. So I'm seventy four, seventy three wow. now. And you have four children. Yes, right. and eight grandchildren. Emer, Karen, Fiona, and Neil. Very well done. Did a bit of research. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, you did. <laughs> so you whisked her off her feet, and, and you were danced around. So danced, danced, we danced did around. Did you know when you met her that she was going to? I, kn- I thought she looked fantastic. Marrying her, first of all, my father was very anti the whole thing, because I was the eldest. From his point of view, ridiculously young, right. immature. And tried to talk me out of it. What age, were talk- what age when we got married? 22. When he got to know Brida, then he became a huge fan. She softened him up. She totally did. <laughs> she totally did. But it was. Uh, I suppose we were, we were, we were young. Like I mean, if my if my children started going out when they were 17 and got married when they were 22, I'd say I would, I would, I would. That's what we do. We exactly. And I know a lot of people who were married, who were married at like 19 and 20, and yeah. their kids are getting married at 19 or 20. That's yeah. what you do. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so paint the picture now. So you're whisking her off to all these uh, yeah dance halls. Dance halls. What was it like in Dublin? So this is the 60s now, we're in Yeah, yeah absolutely. Show bands. Show bands, right, right. Like, for example, Dickie Rock, Joe Dolan, all yeah. these guys. They were the hot, the hot places to go. What was it like for a woman living? Were, were men nicer back then? Were they politer? Well, I'd say they were for sure. I yeah. mean, I'd say that uh, not just Breed and myself, but all of our friends treated women with a, with a lot of respect. Mm. We, we were a group. We had a flat. We would go down there with six or eight of us mm. after the dance and uh, have a cup of coffee, have a chat and all that. Yeah. No messing around, really, by the yeah. way. 
we had a lot in common because we were, we were equal. Uh, but I mean, I don't, you I don't were equal. Women weren't. The marriage bar was in place yeah. then. They weren't allowed to work. That's so true. Was, was, that was, that was that's true. Equality back then. For example, when I got married, my salary, which was in the ID at the time, went up from seven hundred and forty pounds a year to seven hundred and ninety pounds a year just for getting married. Yeah, so, and then uh, Brida had to stop working. They were the rules of things. But I'm just talking about uh, in human relationships. Uh, I can't remember any scandals, if you know what I mean, of yeah. anybody. So yeah. you then left uh, Sing Street and you went to college. What did you do in college? I didn't go to college. To, oh, you didn't go to college? Because Great, neither did I. And that's the big thing that I get on this. People didn't go to college. No, right. okay. really? Yeah. I didn't go to I college. Because after all, like I was 17, I was the oldest in the family. We hadn't got a lot of money. It yeah. would, would, would have been out of the question for them to put me through college because I didn't have the money. And it was an accepted thing. It wasn't I was saying, oh, why didn't you send me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I went and I, I got my first job, a firm called Irish Pensions Trust. But at that same time, I applied to become part of the government as a thing called the executive officer which was a, an exam you did at that time if you wanted to get into the civil service and um, I was in Irish Pensions Trust for about I think it was around about two months and I got the notification that I had been successful in getting the job and I was going to, to apply to the Department of Industry and Commerce and I said I'm going to have to leave well and we talk about civil service and yeah. Yeah. Ireland was had to almost build a country from scratch in 1996 yeah. when we uh, sort of formed the country. We broke away from Britain after many years under their yoke and we set up the Republic of Ireland, the north of Ireland for those overseas is still part of Great Britain. But we had to put in place infrastructure and roads and yeah, yeah. departments that looked after education and health and, you know, we had to build a country. Yeah. And that wasn't that long. No. ago when you came along. And no. The civil service was seen as it is today, sort of flabby and bureaucratic and red tape and nothing gets done. And tell me a little bit just about the whole way you view the civil service. At the time or now? Now, over, the, over your life. Well, uh, at the time, it was seen to be a good place to go. A lot of the best civil services, you know, the TK Whittigers and these other secretaries of departments, came up through the system because at the time it was a good job to get when you were young. Nowadays it's different because young people coming out of college have such a choice and they would only, they really would only go into the civil service if, if, as a last resort. That's a shame really. I, mean, I think as well that, that we have, this applies to MPs and, and, and parliament, people in our, in our parliament. I often talk about Singapore when I went there. I was amazed they, they made politicians the highest paid people the land and everyone goes of course they did you know there's sort of a, a Serbic reaction but they did it for a reason the reason was they wanted to get the brightest people yeah. in the country yeah. wanting to be going into politics to run yeah. the country yeah. and it worked yeah. so it was a Lee Kuan Yew thing starting from scratch yeah. you can you know you can etch a sketch a new country what's the birthright of the last born what's the what things would we change here now yeah, yeah. Uh, if we could start again we probably wouldn't have as many no definitely but there's another huge weakness in our system which is that there are some really really bright people despite everything coming up through the civil mm -hmm. service who went, went to the very top and they're forced after seven years to leave they're like in their middle 40s and they get a pension for the rest of their lives is that to stop corruption, or what's the it's reason? To, it's to provide for outlets for young people coming up behind them. But to that extent, it's, it's I suppose it's a good thing, but it's just an absolutely crazy thing that the system, is, you start paying people full pension, defined benefit pension, 
from their middle 40s to the rest of their lives. They, they could do so much by staying on in the public sector. What about the frustration of red tape, you can't do that, work at your own pace, is that still here? Well, one of, the, one of the fantastic things about the IDA is that we didn't ha you didn't have that at all. And the relationship we had with government was that we, we would get money from the, the government and we would deliver jobs, show the government that it was good value for money for them. And, and the more we did that, the more independence we had because they said, well, they know what they're doing there in the IDA and let them at it. Tell me how the idea got set up and what the idea was. So, well, well, the idea got, up, got set up, I think it got started up in the first place in 1949, just as a way of encouraging people to set up business here. And then in 1969, 1970, they decided to split the idea off to become its own separate body. Those of us who were working there at the time were given the option of either going back to the civil service or leaving the civil service and going into the new idea. Right. Ireland, just for again those people that were listening from overseas, was a agriculturally based poor country. We had a massive famine in the middle 1800s and huge emigration as part and parcel of this country ever since the dawn of time practically. But there was a sense that we, we, I think, initially wanted to try and be competitive with heavy industry. Well, yeah, yeah, see, um, the, the, the originally, like, in the, there was a radical plan produced by Dr. Ken Whitaker called the Programme for Economic Expansion, which changed the policy of industry, which the original policy was called the Control of Manufacturers Act. So if someone wanted to set up in Ireland, they had to go and apply for a licence. The country was really in a hugely bad way and he produced this plan to say like well like forget that and let's open the doors and let's let's welcome in people who want to set up here and let's let's give them some incentives to set up here and that was in 1958 i think it was and that was the beginning of the policy which in one way or another exists to this day that we actually build on that to be an open door place where we want to encourage overseas companies to come and set up in ireland and to provide jobs and to help them out yeah so the changeover was um, fantastic thing to do. They push a lot into education as well. They, they believe that if we strong, were immigrating, let's be smart. And strong emphasis on education. Mm. Yeah. Which still stands in the, to in the hope It does. It does. Yeah. And in the early days, um, the first pharmaceutical company that came here was about, it was Pfizer in around about the early 60s. It took off from there really, you know. They're still here, aren't they? They're still here. Where was your head at then in terms of, you were just saying that you had the choice to make of, of probably a braver, but maybe a little bit riskier move into the, the new IDA or stay as a civil servant, but did you, were you starting to feel a kind of a uh, calling? Yeah, oh, well, I, I was, the work I was doing was in the IDA, but it was, it was part of the civil service and uh, Brita was all out for it as well, so I thought it was a good decision to go yeah. with the new IDA. It was an exciting place to be, and you just imagine yourself like you were talking, so you're talking to big businessmen who were talking about coming here, you know, your, your mindset was to be encouraging to them, going back to the customer service thing I was talking about in the shop and that you were you were given tools which is grants, in other words you're writing up applications for them to get money from us. It was terrific work really, you know, and, and you felt good about it. And then in the early days too we, we built a number of industrial estates and one in Waterford, one in Galway, so we'd actually be able to say to say an incoming investor and we have we have factories there waiting for you to have a look at and yeah, see if they suited yeah, you and so on. So you, you, you built actual factories in advance in advance yeah. that were all ready yeah, yeah, yeah. to... That were, that were how there. did you know what kind of factory to build? We, we didn't. <laughs> right. 
We didn't. So just a big warehouse kind of thing. Yeah, we built, built an estate first of all, and right. there were there were so there would be some yeah, factories, let's say, of ten thousand yeah, square feet and some of twenty thousand square yeah. feet, and then if it didn't entirely so suit them, they could yeah. expand. We always room for expansion and so on. I can imagine the discussions about freeing that money up. So yeah. What do you do? What if no one comes? Yeah. It's like it's like builders and they will come. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's, it's like it's like we had to say to the government, "You trust us," you know. I mean, and, and uh, from the word go, like that has been that's a challenge, and it has worked really, really well. There was never any. There's a, there's also an element of I suppose of the it is a major public works exercise, so you are putting people to work. Yes. On building true. That's true as well. So that that, also that, helps. That's yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the we move on. I guess is the next stage the the big Intel win. No, well, I was just going to mention about the startup of the IFSC because it, 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 right. it was a few years before was Intel. It really? Yeah, oh, okay. it was it was 1987 right. and Intel was 1989. Okay. So anyway, 1987, then there was a new government appointment. It was an election, new government, new, new Taoiseach Charlie Hai. Mm-hmm. High emigration, high unemployment. They looked around to see what could they do about it. He we was got this guy, uh, Charles Hockey, who mm. took over uh, Ireland. <laughs> he became our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister. Very polarizing person, in, to my mind, and I'm a generation or two behind Kira, and I, I have uh, I found him an odious and uh, corrupt man. He was one of those sort of guys who used to stand and sit on the television telling everyone to tighten their belts, and it all came out that he was spending like a, like a lord. Uh, but he was, in, he was the guy at the, at the, t- at the start of this uh, attempt to bring Ireland kicking and screaming into a new era, which I guess eventually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one of the, um, you will come to maybe Bertie Ahern, who was one of his successors, and there was a great quote about the subsequent boom in Ireland, which was Bertie Ahern taking credit for. It was like a cock taking credit for the dawn, which I quite liked. Very good, very good. <laughs> what was your review of Hoggy? You don't have to say anything that you... So I could tell you stories, because I had a fair bit of dealings with them. And certainly the IFSC... How did he treat you? I'll tell you a little story. He phoned me up in 1989 and he asked me to go over and see him. I was at the second level in the IDA. And he said, your minister, who at the time was Des O'Malley, and the minister for finance, who at the time was Albert Reynolds, are at lockerheads with each other. And I've been acting as an honest broker between them. <laughs> he said, and I, we had a meeting this morning and all we could agree was that we would get someone independent to meet the two of them. And what, what the issue was about a German company, Willie Korf, buying Irish Steel. Irish Steel was a basket case. He said, so the, all we could agree on was we get someone, and there's someone as you, says he to me, uh, and we want you to go and meet Albert Reynolds and meet Desil yeah. Malley. These are all Irish Irish ministers, yeah. And come back here and tell me two things. One is, what do you think of Korf and what do you think of the deal? And I did a lot of research, as you might imagine, because he was the Taoiseach. And I came back after about a fortnight to see him and he said well yes or no so see and I said well it's a little bit more complicated than yes or no Taoiseach and I told him the pluses and minuses he, he, he sat me down and he said and he questioned me and the questions were on the button was he respectful to you? totally and so much so after that like I had a good enough relationship with him you know? But Tell me about some of his so so, yeah. so <laughs> the bad side bad side he he's dead now so I'm dead sure. now. Statute of limitations in this. Yeah. Another on another occasion, he, he called me over and he said, "I've met a group of people this morning." He said, "Who are among the brightest people I've ever met in my life. They want to invest in Ireland, and I'd like you to look to look after them personally." So see. <laughs> and I said, "So what sector are they talking about?" And he said, "I don't know. Food, maybe." So see. So they were Arabs. 
met them and had a lot of toing and froing with them. But they really had never any interest because they were already after parting with a lot of money to Yaman. <laughs> That's what he was. He was a mix of... Uh, but he did change. Like, up until then, every Taoiseach was straight as a die. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's he got found out. I think it's fair to say, and yeah. he did have to face mm. the music before he died. I think he died caught. Yeah, he died right. caught. Well, I think most people who would be around would say that he, there was some mixture of both of those things in it. Yeah. Certainly, the IFSC probably wouldn't have happened only for him because he was so driven and so so powerful, really. Yeah. Well, and they get a huge amount of. He, him wanting it to succeed would be to deliver on his own ego, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. But also by overriding, you know, I mean, if the, if the fellow from the Depart- of the Revenue, for example, the Department of Finance said, well, listen, Taoiseach, so and so, so and so, he'd actually drive through them. So the IFSC is a glittering... Yes, yeah, so it employs, employs about 40,000 people now, you know. So. It's been a very successful undertaking over the last 40 years where we've moved from trying and failing to compete with heavy industries uh, we did have some success. Henry Ford, for example, built his first factory uh, in Europe in Cork. But we were never really able to compete, as, as Kieran said, with steel or uh, heavy-duty shipbuilding or stuff like that that was going on, and, uh, mainly in Britain. We were um, a, com- a country that was agricultural. So today we have a very different s- uh, setup. Talk to us about where the last 30 years of the IDA brought the country or helped to bring the country. One of the uh, one of the companies that came here, as you as you mentioned, was Intel, and they uh, they put together a team that was going to visit seven countries, um, including Ireland. In the early stages of their assessment here, they were very taken with talent. They were worried about where would they be able to get people who had experience of semiconductor manufacturing, because we kn- we had no other high volume semiconductor operation in Ireland. They were going to be the first, and they didn't. They wondered how could they manage that. We hired a consultant to go out to California to actually go around. There's a, there's a, there was a network of Irish kids who had gone to work in California. We plugged into that network and went to them and said, if there was a job available for you in Ireland, would you come back? And we got, so we got 64 or 65 names of people and addresses and phone numbers to say, yeah, if Intel come, we definitely will go back. So that was very helpful. We were giving Intel a big grant. In fact, the Intel grant was 87 million over five years and it, to put it in context the total budget of the IDA at the time was actually 75 million right. so um, big punt big punt and uh, the government said well look at this is a big punt and it's a big firm we don't know that and we know they're going to provide 1300 jobs I think about at the beginning uh, but you're going to have to get strong commitment from Intel that they're going to be here for at least five years right. Intel said to us we don't know we can we can count for the first 18 months but after that it depends as much on you, Ireland, as it does on us. So if you can continue to have a competitive environment for us to be here, we're all on the same side. Most companies would say that. They would They would say it, and in fact they meant it, because they're, it's a very fast-moving sector, as you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's got set up, and uh, it's uh, it's been a huge success. Like mm. in a, they're still here. They still, came, they're still they, you brought that over the line in what year? September 1989. 1989. So this for you was a big... Well, it was transformative. I mean, it was, it was like going from Doncaster Rovers to Manchester United, really, yeah. in terms of how we presented to other firms around the world. And they told us as well that if we come to Ireland and we, we, we continue here, there will be constructors, construction companies and other contractors suppliers on the site, suppliers, suppliers yeah. 
that will never leave the site and that has proven like that is proven to, from 1989 to 2017 to be the yeah, case yeah. which Intel is remarkable inside inside <laughs> so they employ about four and a half or five thousand people now so the basic pitch and let's talk in a minute in a second about some of the you didn't you you, you didn't win everything no right? no and we put a lot of effort into things that we didn't win like for example around the same time which was obviously huge growth in the sector and uh, Siemens were looking at building a new wafer fabrication operation as well. We said we should go to Intel and ask them for their permission because at this stage Intel was by far our biggest client still is to this day and said like would you be okay with us going after Siemens and they said we would provide it you put them in Cork rather than Dublin because they, we don't want them to be poaching our workers fair, fair point of yeah. Siemens also had a team that we were interacting with and they were happy about going to Cork there was no issue about that in fact, there was no issue about anything, really, we thought, because we, were, we had now established ourselves through the Intel decision. We went to our board and to say that we had this proposition from Siemens, which we've developed over the, uh, the last few months, and we were recommending a package and so on, and our board agreed to it. We thought we were home and dry, and then the next thing we got, there was no, there was no sound at all from Siemens, and when, they, when we were trying to find out what was going on, it went quiet. And John Bruton was the Taoiseach at the time, we asked John Bruton, would he ring Mr. Von Peerer, who's the chief executive of, of Siemens, who got in, subsequently got into a lot of bother, but with... Um, South Africa. South Africa, was it, or China somewhere? Yeah. He rang Von Peerer and he got back onto me, Bruton did, and he told me that um, when their team went to their own board, the board had turned it down because between times, the government of Britain offered to buy all of their army of vehicles, all of their every other kind of vehicles for Se- from Siemens for the next five years. So, and the, so, the, so the thing went to Newcastle instead of to Cork. Huge disappointment to us. Well, Siemens, <laughs> if you're listening, you haven't had such a good run over the last <laughs> ten years. Maybe you should have come to Ireland. <laughs> Actually, they closed. The, 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 the Newcastle operation had to close down afterwards, mm. which so was lucky in a way for us. Your key pitch was a low-tax economy and a well-educated young workforce. Yeah. Would that be fair? Would. Were you in bed and tight with the education changes that needed to take place to meet? Yeah, we were. How how did you do that? Because of the nature of the organization and its relationship with government, we had a big say so about how money got spent in the rest of the economy. So if the IDA felt that it was really important, let's say, to have an institute of technology, which happened in relation to uh, Intel and Blanchardstown, we really need to set up another college nearby that would happen so the reach of the IDA I say to this day is very much much beyond the narrow business of the the tax you know how did you approach these problems that had so many different legs to them that needed fixing did you chunk them and just do it one by one or did you well I you know not really no not really I I didn't get frustrated and and if go back to Intel we got really close to them, you know, and um, a funny and a nice thing happened. Rolled forward to last year. The head of Intel Worldwide, his name is Craig Barrett, and he was in the situ when, when the decision got made to come here, and he was still, he's still around, and he's retired now, but I, I, was, I rang him. I wanted him to come to a meeting and talk about it all. I rang him, and then I said, I don't know if you remember me, Craig. I'm Kieran McGowan from... And he said, remember you, he said. <laughs> Everyone in Intel... <laughs> I thought that was very nice, really. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. 
Well, you, I mean, you, you, uh, I, I said at the top of the podcast that you have a, you, you're not comfortable with receiving praise. Why, why is that? Well, I don't feel any need for it, to be honest with you, genuinely. I mean, I mean, I was, we're talking about my own kind of history in here, but like, there was a whole big organization with me as well. It's yeah. not me, so I wasn't doing shot by own. No, but the and lead, you were leading it. I mean, the was leader, leading, yeah, leading it. Yeah, you were the captain, you were the leader, yeah. you were the public face. Yeah. But you know, it's, Embarrassing, really. I mean, I've, I've it doesn't, it's embarrassing. Honestly. Right. Okay. Bertie Hearn called you a practical patriot. Did, did he? Yeah. He, what he, 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 he said something nice about me when I was retiring, all right, which was nice. Bertie Hearn was, was another uh, Taoiseach of Ireland, Prime Minister, who uh, came in after Hockey. He was very much a um, student. Or acolyte of Charlie Hawhey and uh, he also ran into problems although he did a lot of good work for sure. Northern Ireland yeah. fixed that and he was in charge when basically the next thing I want to talk about is the boom so Ireland then went from being this really poor fag end country in the EEC taking huge grants from the Europe Kieran has spoken about the IFSC we set up a financial services sector in the country it took off and happy days came. Ireland in the late 90s, early 2000s was booming. We went from one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the wealthiest. So everyone here was buying houses in Poland and Lithuania and Mercedes-Benz and banks were giving 120% loans out to people and we were just, we could do no wrong. You retired in 1998 just as this boom hit from the IDA. Talk to me about that time. Well, it was a the boom, as you say. You just you described it well. I don't. I mean, there's something I think in our general psyche that we don't seem to be able to do steady state growth. We either do what you have to describe it, or we go bust. Or boom or bust. Boom yeah. or bust. I think it's driven by um, we're still a relatively young country. You know what I mean? Mm. So we've never we don't have a capitalism a capitalist sector really mm. yeah we have a small number of very wealthy people when you compare it to the uk for example it's completely different like our background is we came as you said from agriculture country so we are still growing really in terms of putting in place a i think a capitalist system they and the developers and the bankers had drove a lot of the uh, mad stuff people were climbing over each other a lot of people then got hurt when it went bang it, it has been awful as well. You know. So the country went into massive overdrive, yeah. could do no wrong, and then around about the time of the subprime collapse, yeah. uh, and before that here probably, we had a housing bubble caused by overeager banking let loans going out to people. Somebody said to me once that actually the, the, the growth of the IFSC brought a whole pile of very, very uh, rich well-salaried people from overseas banks into Dublin, for example, who were able to name their price on accommodation and bought whatever they wanted and probably wanted to stay in the city centre. And almost that 2,000 people or whatever it was fueled the whole, the whole bust. And, and that's true. And that's that's happening right as, as this moment. Right now, yeah. Driven by Brexit, where, where a number of these hotshots are coming in, pushing up the price of the top end of the market to yeah. this day. It's extraordinary that we don't seem to be able to manage it. Well, I mean, I left away and mm. I, I left to go to leave Ireland in 1996. And my joke is, 
as soon as the plane door closed, Ireland started making lots of money. Um, <laughs> if I was the catalyst. But I used to come home, you know, obviously for Christmas and stuff like that. And it became to the point where I just didn't like coming home. I didn't like the attitude of people. Yeah. I didn't like the fact that... So during this bust, we still, just to show that, you know, this whole trickle-down economics doesn't work. What happened was inequality went through the roof. We, we, we left a lot of people behind yeah. and we still have the, that as, a, as, a, as a, an aftermath yeah. to this day. Yeah. Um, did you see the bus coming? You, you were in a, maybe, I don't know whether you want to talk about this, but you, you, when you left the IDA, you were very in demand to sit on boards yeah. of, of major corporations yeah. because I guess you had contacts there and they were saying, this guy's really good, bring him in. How, yeah. did, how did your life change when you retired? Well, it changed good, but I retired when I was from the IDA when I was 55. The first company that I, uh, asked me to go to join their board was CRH. That's Cement Roadstone Holdings, they're a big uh, construction company. company. I subsequently became chairman of that company. So I was on a different track, I suppose, really. Very successful company. Very successful company, exactly. They employ about 300,000 people. It's yeah. very big. The company said, well, if CRH went and we want them to so I got on the board of a number of different companies. I had to learn new skills, really, because the public sector and the, pr and the private sector, they're really, really very different from each other. Mm. So one of the things that happens and has happened is, you know, you talk, we opened the discussion talking about your job in a grocery shop in Ratmines. Yeah. And banks used to be not unlike that, yeah. where you knew the local manager, yeah. where you put your money and you trusted them, yeah. and he took a little bit off the top and he helped you. Exactly. And banks have become these horrible yeah. supermarket type yeah. places where they True. don't treat, we talked about real customer service, yeah. your brown paper bags, giving yeah. credit, tick boxing, your father doing this. Yeah. Banks don't do. We're in, the, we're in the process, as we speak, of a major scandal about to erupt in Irish banking over, uh, again, housing and mortgages you were caught in the eye of a storm you were a board director of irish life permanent yeah when 100 percent loan to value mortgages came in yeah where all i think ulster bank started and all the banks they, then started they, giving they, people too much bloody money exactly correct and the chief executive of irish life permanent at that time was a guy called david went he went to the regulator and he said look you better stand in, step in here and ban 100% mortgages because if you don't, it's going to be widespread. And so this would be the central bank? It's a, a branch of the central bank. Branch of the central bank. And David, David was a banker for a long time and he was also, he's also very clear in his views. He said, if you don't step in and ban these 100% mortgages, you're going to lead to widespread inflation. And they, the regulator said, well, we're a principle-based regulator, which is just nonsense, really. It's just, it's just, it's just words. So it, so anyway, it happened, and I was fortunate in a way. Like I was on the board nine or ten years, but I retired in two thousand and eight. So I was I, I missed the worst of it in terms of the banks being called to account, which they should have been. Um, so let's talk. Let's stop there. So yes, yeah, so should have been prosecuted. Nobody's been prosecuted. One of the things I am interested in is, you know, you talk about David Wendt, you talk about your role, you talk about we talk about the banks as if this there's some sort of amorphous kind of cloud of people all of the people who are in the banks are people who get up in the morning go to work and come home david went you said warned the regulator if we continue to do this we were going to drive inflation and yeah. possibly a bubble but he went and did it 
because, uh, because from what I've read, uh, they're very sensitive to market share and they want to keep their market share up. What we're talking about here is a cartel that seems to just do what it likes mm. and waits for a teacher to say, don't do that, knowing full well that we're being driven down. A you know, also, so if you take the, the, a bank, any bank, mm. they have a number of stakeholders, one of whom are actual shareholders in yeah. the bank. They come along in relation to the current issue of stealing money, you could say, yeah. away from the people who have uh, tracker mortgages. I'd say what, what, what happened, and just, just goes to people's values, there must have been a discussion at the board of some bank to say, look, we, the board, would like you to woo people, customers of ours, away from their tracker mortgages, because otherwise we're going to have less profits. So that, that discussion, in one form or another, must have happened at one bank, and then nobody asked the question of, what about the customers we have who have tracker mortgages, who are finding it hard enough to pay even the tracker mortgages? But you know, I will contend that someone did ask that question, because that's a very obvious question. You would have think. Well, no, I, uh, I would say the question was asked, and, uh, and there was a decision made, screw them. That wouldn't be put on the table, screw them. No, of or, course or any not, or in any correspondence. The profit motive is, is, was really okay. the driver. Of course, now when it's seen, it seemed to be just appalling. Well, I have a friend who, who was very, fairly high up in the legal department of the central bank yeah. when the first collapse happened. And when the first collapse happened, just for those listening, Ireland went from boom to bust. It nearly did a Greece. The only reason we didn't do a Greece is that we had probably better infrastructure in terms of taxation and stuff like that. People do pay their taxes here. Yeah, but yeah. It, was the, it was the taxpayer yeah. who got left with the bill for all of these guys who were trading fraudulently and, and abusing the system. I had a friend of mine in the central bank, and I said to him, what the hell just happened? Why didn't you say anything? Yeah. And he said, nobody asked me. And I went, that's not good enough. You have to be asked. Yeah. Well, we, we're not a whistleblower nation. We're not someone who encourages whistleblowing. We're not And whistleblowers don't get well treated. And they don't get well treated at all, as we know from around the world. And th this is the regulator. Like, this is the guy who's the canary in the mine. He's mm -hmm. got to... And he's got a wife, and his view is, I see the crash coming. Yeah. I think a lot of people saw the crash coming. People yeah. in the building trade saw the crash coming. Yeah. My sister is an architect. But everyone just froze in the headlights, waited yeah. for the lorry to hit them. And again, to your point, we don't seem to have learned and put in place checks and balances to stop this happening again. We're in the throes of Brexit, where we're hoping to, the IDA, which is still going, is hoping, I'm sure, to get a lot of businesses coming in here, coming in here mm -hmm. because we're English speaking and we're close to America and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. If we do get them, they're going to come in. If there's not enough houses, they'll have free reign on buying whatever they want. That will drive the property up again. Mm -hmm. People will get squeezed out. Mm -hmm. Eventually, there'll be a bubble and we'll collapse again. Mm -hmm. Why do you not think that we've been... Because we're educated. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of... Uh, we're a nation of followers, especially on this point we're talking about. Mm -hmm rather than outright leaders who are prepared to go against the trend and say, well, look, at these people are going to drive up the prices. We're going to stay out of it. And then if their shareholders are saying, well, look, and why is the share price? And we say, well, look, at that's the way we want to run our business. That's going to take someone with a lot of balls, really, to do that. And a lot of balls and a lot of support from other places, other people and other 
stakeholders. Mm. That has been the, the, the dominant culture over time with followers. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was I've come home to Ireland um, and I was intrigued about your uh, very clever strategy of getting people back to serve the Intel pitch. I've come home after 21 years and I'm kind of angry. I'm angry because 21 years is a long time in politics <laughs> and a long time in life and a long time in businesses. And if you take, you know, from when you retired in 1998, you go back 21 years to the mid 60s and the leaps and bounds that we made between 1965 and 1998. And I look now at the country that I left in 96, 21 years ago, and the same five things that were problems then are the same five things, only worse now. Our health system is creaking, was creaking back then, is worse hospital bed waits, waits for to see GPs, waits to see doctors. Our education system has been in need of overhaul during that time, I think. It is in need of overhaul, especially at third level. We have a growing and worsening inequality, despite what anyone tells us about our progressive tax system. We have got lots and lots and lots of people who can't make ends meet. Mm -hmm. We have a homeless problem that is laughable. We have something like 9,000 people in this country in temporary accommodation, two and a half thousand in kids. We only have 200 people on the streets of Dublin sleeping rough. I say that only because we can't even fix that. And we have a body politic or a, a, a parliament at all that is full of people who procrastinate and don't do. And we have no doers. We are missing creativity. We are missing bravery and we are missing action. And these were the things that we were missing in 1996 when I left. One of the reasons I left. You're a glass half full guy. Tell me how we can get out of this. How do you think we can get out of this? Well, there are, there, if, if you take the homelessness, for example, there are one or two people breaking the mold. Mm -hmm. Peter McVeary. Yeah. Brother Kevin. Mm -hmm. Which I would say Tony Gregory was doing Tony in 1996 when I was leaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were people there then who were yeah. breaking the mold. Yeah, yeah. I guess what we need are people, more breakers of molds, really. I think another thing is compassion. We've lost something. See, we, 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 I see, I think we're compassionate as a nation on an individual basis. Right. I even feel that about myself, for example. We have a number of people who, you know, who have a, are having a hard time. I feel very close to them. I really feel very close to them. And I think that would be the case with a lot of people much more than we're able to be compassionate to a plan. I was saying to the fellows that do, do live in St. Paul out their own way, like, would it be possible, I said to them a few years ago, to break off, say, a series of half a dozen, and a half a dozen, and a half a dozen, and say, Shawnee, this, we, we would really like you to look after these, these six people. Whatever, whatever. Because I think, Instinctively, in our in our nature, I mm. think we are we're not. It's not as if we're absolutely completely driven by driven mad by wealth and all that. I think we think that we are a compassionate people. We, we've never been able to harness a response to it. Of course, that didn't happen either. When relation to guys and said, "Well, we couldn't do that because it would break down and all the rest of it." And I think that's a bit of a pity, really. You know, from when we were children, we have this built-in, despite the fact that we're Catholic and Christian, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so much of of religion is about looking after the person in trouble yeah we have this built-in resistance to giving alms 
and excuses. Those women are only out there with their single mothers. They're only having babies so they can get the free money. Now, the free money is a hundred and something a week. There's a lot of better ways of making a hundred bucks than getting pregnant and having a baby. Your man's only going to spend his money on drugs. So what? Doesn't matter, exactly. Doesn't matter. And I don't know how we break this. We have it in us. Yeah. And I think in this respect, yourself and myself have come from the same. You knew before we had this interview, where my background was, decidedly modest. I think that's my dominant culture. I really get good satisfaction out of it. And as time has gone on, by the way, in relation to my own kind of career, I now have about four or five involvements, and only one of them is commercial involvement, all the rest of them are pro bono in one way or another. So, And that's the way it should be, I think, really. Yeah. And I, I get much more kick out of it than I did out of the businessy things. You know? yeah. I look at, say, my career in advertising, and you know, it's very easy to say this from a 30-year career where I've made my money. Yeah. But I find it not unlike the cigarette business. It's a business that is morally and ethically questionable. It is a business that drives greed. It is a business that pimps capitalism. It is a business that makes people buy and want things they don't necessarily need, which causes them to get into a hole, which we seem to just go, sorry, he didn't have to buy, he didn't have to believe our ads. There's something to me about trying to get... Like, I really like the way that you chunk the Vincent de Paul thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, that chunking idea is an example of creativity yeah. doing something differently to solve yeah. a problem looking yeah. at problems in new ways yeah. it's brave might yeah. not work yeah but let's have a crack at it yeah. it is action yeah and it is actionable yeah you're working at the moment with business in the community yeah. tell me about that so business in the community have a number of member companies who give them money to do things and for example they one of which is it's called a schools business partnership program where where they would go to, let's say, Diageo. They'd ask Diageo to mentor kids from James Street School, kids who have no parents anymore, typically break out of school at the end, at their interstage. They would get people in Guinnesses to mentor the kids. The track record is that the probability of going on to the Leaving Cert stage is way, way higher than it would have been without this program. And then the mentors very often become friends of the kids for life. We have that going with 249 schools around the country. Right. Number one. Number two, we have another program called Ready for Work, where we get people who have been in a bad place, druggies, have been in prison mostly, and who are getting their act together, and they're, they're made ready for work, certified in a way... We would go to a member company, the best of whom is Marks and Spencer, and say, listen, we think that Shawnee now is okay. Give him a job. Give him a job. They would take him on, they'd give him a job for a fortnight, they would give him a little certificate saying, Shawnee, do 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 Or alternatively, if you... If take they him on. Take him on. Three months. They have little videos, and it's just really emotional how these kids saying, you know, they're now working in the luggage department, or they're now actually being allowed to serve customers, and they never thought they would be. It's fucking so who's, who's it's fantastic. is it a new thing? It's there since the year two thousand. Okay, and I've been chairman of it since thirteen years. Well, I'd like to help with that. If Would you? Can. Yeah. In any way, they also give advice to companies about their sustainability of their businesses, climate action, and all that kind of stuff. It's actually, I say, very dead on for you and what you're trying to think about. One of the things you just touched on there, I want to talk to you about. Why have we not become one of the global leaders in sustainable energy. Wind, yeah. wave. Yeah. We're a rock in the middle of the roughest ocean in the world. Yeah. Why can't we harness? Why have we not bothered? Yeah. Denmark have. We should have. Like the, the reality is we should have. But we're a ridiculous country in the sense that if you want to put up a, a farm of um, the high wind, wind farm, things, yeah. there's some little object to it. 
crap really. Okay, look, that was really intriguing and interesting and you've calmed me down a little bit, I think, <laughs> my, my return to my own country. So look, before we wrap this up, and thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you. What thank are, you what very are much. Your, what are your two or three things you want to leave wisdom-wise? And what would you say to a young person in Dublin today or Ireland today? So strong emphasis on education. Keep learning. Keep learning. Another thing that I think really people need to trust people in businesses and in life. You know the person that we're talk- that you might be talking to or working with such that they're, they're a real friend or a business friend, mm. but there's somebody that you could actually criticize them, but they would take it in a way that it would be their brother and your brother. Meaningful. Trust, I think, is a huge thing, really. And then the whole business about... I'm thinking of a number of the people that we that I know at the other end of life, and I do put my arms around and give them a hug, really, you know. Yeah. So compassion. 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 Yeah, the lady who delivers our newspaper, for example, is a really good friend of Breeders and myself. She gets a terrible raw deal from her in every way. We, we love her, really. Yeah. And we, she says this, we're in due of her parents, really. Wow. I'd like to be able to do that for more people. Brilliant. Yeah. Kieran McGowan, thank you very much for taking time to uh, chat on a pint with Shawnee B. Some really interesting leave behinds there. And also, I think you're the first person who's mentioned trust out of all my interviews. And I think it's something that's been lacking in my career and is lacking in society in general. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Shawnee.